Well, I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10, we'll be looking at verse 17. And we will not get all the way to chapter 12, verse 7, as I had originally intended. We'll be stopping at verse 28 of chapter 10. I mean, of chapter 11. We'll pick up where we leave off next week. And while you're turning there, in an article for um, MarthaStewartWedding.com, Tasha Murtog provides several examples of modern wedding vows that couples can make in order to you know, change things up from the boring religious and traditional vows we're so used to hearing. So there's 10 different examples alongside a picture of the trendy couple. And it says this, we'd expect nothing less than super cool vows from this California couple who threw a chic picnic party wedding. The groom's self-pinned script included the funny phrase, I love putting the toothpaste on your toothbrush. I'm yours for eternity. Now, I know you want to laugh, but you feel like you can't. Um, honestly, after reading all 10 of these examples, this was probably the best one. Um, and here's the thing, maybe some of you are thinking this is, you know, you're being a little bit of a stick in the mud, Brad. Just, just get over it. Let them have a little fun. There's nothing wrong with making a few edits, right, here and there to our uh, traditional language uh, to modernize the language, to change up the wedding vows. But I, th- I think we have to be honest. If we're going to put toothpaste and eternity in the same sentence, at the very least, we're minimizing the importance and value of the commitment that's being made. Right? We're, if we're not mocking it, uh, then we're minimizing its importance. And in our text this morning, we come to one of the most controversial judges of all, Jephthah. And the question is, what did he vow? And then, how was it carried out? And it's been interpreted by scholars and pastors and preachers in vastly different ways. And regardless of where you land, no one can say that Jephthah minimized the importance and the value of the commitment he made. And no one denies that he faithfully followed through on his commitment, that he took it seriously. Uh, he, he didn't belittle this vow or take it lightly. And I would say, and your handout has this, that the, the main idea of this whole section, including what we'll talk about next week, is, is that one indication of a believer's maturity is their willingness to uphold their lawful vows. One indication of a believer's maturity is their willingness to uphold their lawful vows, and that's true whether you think Jephthah is mature or immature. Right? If he is immature, then the vow he makes in this passage is one that we would likely interpret as unlawful, against God's law that it was a sin for him to follow through with it, but he did it anyways. Okay, so if he is immature, then we would conclude that. And if he is, as I think, a mature believer, then this 
chapter, this passage, the way he responds to this vow is an indication, uh, or at least one indication of his maturity is his willingness to uphold the vow, despite the great loss that it was to the longevity and or to the longevity of his personal heritage. Because whatever he did, there, there, let me just put it out there now. There's two options, really, two primary options. Either he did sacrifice, literally, and kill his daughter, his only daughter, or it's, it's a figurative kind of sacrifice, right? He, he presented her as a living sacrifice, as Romans 12 says, right? holy and acceptable to God so that she was dedicated probably to something like temple service, dedicated to the Lord, a whole burnt offering in the sense that he, he gives her um, figuratively to the Lord, which would have meant that she could not be married and there would be an end right, to his line. So I'm giving away the farm here, but that is where we'll end next week. We won't, unfortunately, be able to get there this week. Um, before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these difficult chapters that cause us to pause and think and meditate and consider other passages of Scripture and parallels that, that fit here to make sense of what we're reading. We know that your word is, is clear in the sense that even a child can understand what is necessary for salvation as they hear it being proclaimed. And yet there are passages like this that even the best of scholars scratch their heads about. And we depend upon your spirit to grow, to understand this, to be mature about how we read this passage, and then how we apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, we ask for you to speak, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and that we would take this passage to heart, be challenged by this truth, that we would be convicted and ultimately comforted by the gospel. It's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. So read with me Judges chapter 10, verses 17 through eleven twenty-eight. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said one to another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel, and when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob, and they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites." 
But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me, that you have come to to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, "Because Because Israel, on coming up from Egypt, took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to them, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they sent also to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his, pa- his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of of Israel dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? And all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages and in Aurora and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Amen. 
This is God's holy word. Well, we're running a little short on time, and that's why I knew we would need to cut this passage in, in two sections. But the first point I want us to consider is, is Jephthah's character. And so if you're note takers, that's in your outline there. Jephthah's character from 1017 through 1128. We'll pick up the other two points next week. And we can look at this in two backgrounds here from this passage. In chapter 10, uh, 17, all the way through 1111, we see his, his background. The leaders of Gilead offer a proposal of headship to anyone willing to lead their army against the Ammonites. Now, you heard Ammonites and Amorites. You, you got to make sure you don't get those confused. They're two different people, the Ammonites and the Amorites. And Jephthah's brief family history follows uh, this description of the Ammonites coming into Gilead and preparing to attack, right, or taking it over. And so his family history follows, um, and it's setting up, of course, that, that Jephthah will be Gilead's head, representing uh, or leading this military campaign. Um, and it begins, much like it did with Gideon, calling him a mighty warrior. However, there's also this other bit of information, right? That he's the son of Gilead and a prostitute, which now puts him in the category of Abimelech, similar to Abimelech, who was the son of a concubine of Gideon. So you have a mighty warrior, but the son of a prostitute. And when Gilead's other sons grew up, they drove Jephthah away so that he would not receive any of their inheritance. He wasn't on speaking terms with the Gileadites because his brothers drove him out. They rejected him. They hated him. And we learn that wherever he, or that where he went, he ends, uh, in the land of Tob, he ends up collecting around himself worthless fellows. That's also reminiscent of Abimelech. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 4, it, it read, And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So this word could be translated scoundrels. It's, it's, it's not a good company to keep. And so this is his maybe childhood. It's his growing up as he, as he matures, as he's a young adult. He's in this group of people, of worthless men. And, and now we have the Ammonites attacking and apparently, after Gilead's offer that they would get, make anyone their, the, the head, whoever wants to lead um, their attack against the Ammonites, no one has accepted that proposal, and so they now decide to go out and reconcile with Jephthah, to make peace with Jephthah, because they know him to be a mighty warrior. They know him to be capable of leading their military. And it's here that we learn that the elders of Gilead are Jephthah's half-brothers, the, the, or at least that they were on the same page as one another. The elders here were involved in his rejection. And so despite their uh, prior rejection of Jephthah, despite their treatment of him, casting them out, he does remind them of that, but he does accept their offer to become head, similar to Abimelech. And yet at the end, in verses 9 and 10, at the end of the section, you have some statements here 
about uh, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. Do you remember this is the book of Judges? People are, are living in idolatry. They have rejected God. And you have Jephthah here saying, if the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So he repeats his oath before the Lord in verse 11. Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So this is an, these are important details to not just skim over. They help us to understand something of Jephthah's religious values. And although there are several parallels with Abimelech that we've already pointed out, there are just as many parallels with God, with their treatment, with the relationship between Israel and God that we reflected on in chapter 10 a few weeks ago, uh, in chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. So if you compare, if you put alongside chapter 10, 6 through 16, with 11, 1 through 11, you find Several parallels, and I'll point them out. Del Ralph Davis mentions these categories, and then I've filled them in with my own notes. But here's some of the parallels you see. Gilead's rejection of Jephthah in chapter 11, verse 2, is like Israel's rejection of the Lord in their turning to numerous false gods in chapter 10, verse 6. Gilead's experience of distress under the oppression of Ammon occurs both in chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, as well as chapter 11, verses 4 through 5. Um, uh, just as Israel experienced earlier, actually, in uh, chapter 10, verses 7 through 9. So Gilead goes to Jephthah in what somewhat sounds like repentance. Right? The elders go to him, and, and they kind of acknowledge, kind of, a quasi sort of, like, well, that's why we're coming to you now. They, they don't really apologize for kicking him out. But they are coming to him, desiring to give him a place of authority. So they go to Jephthah with what sounds like repentance in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 11, much like Israel's quasi-repentance in chapter 10, verse 10. And just as the Lord raises an objection to Israel's cry in 10, 11 through 14, so Jephthah questions the sincerity of Gilead's repentance. In chapter 11, verse 7. And the elders of Gilead appeal to Jephthah twice. In 11, 5 through 6, and then verse 8. And just as Israel did in the previous chapter, they appeal to him twice. If they ask him, he objects. They appeal again for forgiveness. In verses 15 and 16 of chapter 10. And then finally, there's this acquiescence to the request of Jephthah, uh, by Jephthah in chapter 11, verses 9 through 11, just as the Lord had done for Israel in chapter 10, the end of verse 16. Right, he, uh, we read, he became impatient over the misery of Israel, which I said is really be best understood as him having compassion upon them. He had grown tired of watching them suffer. And then we can also say that these similarities apply to Jesus, right? One despised and rejected by his own people. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, 
and we esteemed him not. What do we find in John 1.11? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And so both Jephthah and Jesus were valued, were only valued for their immediate usefulness. Right? They're predominantly desired uh, for, their, for a military victory. And so I think we, we rightly shake our heads at the way Gilead's elders treated Jephthah. Right? They rejected him. They ensured that he would have no part of their father's inheritance. And then when no one else was willing to risk their lives leading their military, they lure Jephthah back with this proposition of headship. And so they do come across in this passage as thoroughly disingenuous, hypocritical, half-hearted in their repentance, much like Israel does throughout the book of Judges. And yet, the question for us is how often are we guilty of putting our own interests first? All right, what can we learn from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7? Where we see it is said of Christ, Paul speaking of Christ, he encourages his readers, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Right? Reconciliation is never easy, and this is a picture of reconciliation between conflicting kin, family. Right? Even though they're, these are his half-brothers, this is a picture of reconciliation, and it's messy. And if it's going to be successful, it has to begin with genuine intentions of working out all the aspects of true repentance. And that's only possible where there is a Christ-like humility. Where that Christ-like humility is valued, in fact, over self-preservation. A willingness to sacrifice our own reputation, our own uh, time and, and money in order to bring about that reconciliation. Okay, so we've got to quickly look at this next section, but... Considering his background, where he came from, what he experienced, the worthless fellows that were all around him, we would not expect Jephthah to be capable of delivering this history lesson in this next section. And yet that's exactly what he does. He gives a history lesson to the king of the Ammonites in verses 12 through 28 of chapter 11. It's a lengthy passage. We're not going to read it again, but in his first act of being the head of Gilead, Jephthah reaches out to the king of the Ammonites seeking an explanation for their attack. This is a peaceful gesture. He's trying to negotiate with them rather than jumping right into a military campaign. And the king responded that Israel had stolen his land when they came out of Egypt and that he wanted it back. Jephthah, we can avoid conflict here if you just give us back our land. So Jephthah sends back a lengthy history lesson that shows not only his interest in the nation of Israel, his commitment to his nation, 
but also his agreement with the Scripture's interpretation of history. Israel only took what God had given to them, which did not even include Ammonite territory. And we read this in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Through Moses, God said, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So God had instructed Israel to leave Ammon alone. Don't touch the territory of the Ammonites. And so they did. It was the territory of the Amorites that Israel took possession of, as Jephthah would go on to explain in this passage. And so simply put, the land that the current king of the Ammonites was claiming Israel took from them was not their land when Israel arrived. That's how it's, uh, how it's told in Numbers chapter 20 through 24, as well as Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3. And so we can't spend time analyzing all of this um, in, in its context, but it should suffice to show that Jephthah believed God's revelation. Jephthah believed what Moses recorded about Israel's history. And his response proves his knowledge of the scriptures. At least as far as this history lesson goes. But it would make sense that he understood much more than that if he could articulate this so precisely. And so at a time when, a gen when generation after generation was forgetting the Lord and forsaking the worship of him, Jephthah represents someone who knew quite a bit about divine revelation. Right? And if Jephthah were a rash individual, as so many interpret him to be, why would he send messengers to negotiate terms of peace with the king of Ammon not once but twice? Jephthah was not rash. Not even in becoming Gilead's head was he rash, nor was he rash to enter into war. And that should go a long way in, in reforming our opinion of the man's character. Right? Yes, he comes from a questionable background that causes us to raise our eyebrows, but as this section shows, this man was no Abimelech. And now, of course, I do realize that it's possible to have a thorough knowledge of Scripture and yet remain unchanged in moral practice, to be morally corrupt and wicked and yet to have a good understanding of Scripture. But from my perspective, there's no reason for us to impugn this man, especially at this point in the text. Jephthah was a man with great strength, with poise, and with patience. And his past was not pristine. But whose is? His past does not have to define his actions as he moves forward in the narrative. What he, what he was as a young adult does not, have to, does not dictate how we understand his actions moving forward. And if we're honest, as anyone 
possess the level of maturity that they had when they were younger. And to admit, to answer that question in the affirmative is to admit immaturity. To say, no, yes, I'm the same person I was when I was a child. So, in fact, you, you haven't matured at all. And you're still a child in your thinking. No, we, we all mature. We all grow. Believers especially should be able to see that growth that they've experienced, not only in their knowledge of the Scriptures, but in their application of that knowledge in their lives. And so Jephthah's character shows that a man with questionable experiences in the past can grow in his knowledge of the Scripture and become useful to God. And so next week we'll see that that also includes the work of the indwelling Spirit. And so whatever we conclude about Jephthah's character, it is going to have an impact on what we understand about the text that follows. Right? It informs how we interpret the vow that he makes. So let me give you the, the, next, the next two blanks, but we'll pick them up next week. Jephthah's commitment in verses 29 through 40 of chapter 11, and then Jephthah's conflict in chapter 12, 1 through 7. So we looked at Jephthah's character this morning. Next week, we'll look at Jephthah's commitment in verses 29 through 40, and then his conflict in 1 through 7. And if you're unable to join us next week, we do post the sermons on, online. They'll be available by Monday afternoon. But without giving away too much of the, of the text uh, of, the, uh, of next week's sermon, I, I do want to at least affirm that I believe the deliverance Israel received under Jephthah's reign draws a straight line to Jesus Christ. All right, whereas several weeks ago we considered Abimelech to point to Christ by way of contrast, right? He was the opposite of a Christ-like judge. I believe Jephthah's exemplary faith points to Christ by way of parallel themes. And we have already looked at some of those themes. He was despised and rejected. But we'll consider another one next week. Um, and, and yet there is also one example. I think the conflict is problematic in chapter 12, 1 through 7, much like it was for Gideon. Uh, Jephthah's not perfect, and the conclusion of his narrative um, is much like Gideon's. It ends with a blemish. But I don't believe that blemish is nearly as marred as Interpreters have made it out to be um, in their understanding of his vow. So let me close with that and encourage you to join us next week for the rest of the passage. Heavenly Father.